good morning. Uh, we're glad that you're here. For those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor of Family Ministries here at Christ the King, and it's my privilege to, uh, to walk us still through our series in the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, we are turning to chapter 14. And chapter 14 begins the end of Jesus' ministry. This is the beginning of the passion narrative in Mark's Gospel. It begins the story of Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Mark's Gospel has been headed this direction actually for a few chapters now, but we're finally arriving at the last weeks of Jesus' life. And it's in these chapters that we're going to see Jesus fulfilling his purpose as, as the suffering servant. He's fulfilling his mission as God's crucified Lord, as the crucified Lord. And the idea that that the God of creation who created all things, the anointed king, somehow is fulfilling his purpose by subjugating himself to pagan foreign rule and allowing himself to be crucified as a traitor, a traitorous death, so to speak, That feels strange, or that should feel strange to us. In fact, if we really think about it, it almost feels like anathema. It's hard to understand, and it's as hard for us to understand as it was for Jesus' followers to understand. And so in this passage this morning, we're going to look at our struggle to understand the mission of Jesus through the lens of three particular groups of characters in our story. So if you would, we're going to turn now to Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Would you turn with me now in your phones or Bibles or wherever? It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like this? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you are not silent. And we pray, Father, as we consider your word together, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your eyes, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as, as we've consistently said over the last few months, life has been incredibly hard and frightening during the time of COVID-19. And at least for me, and I would imagine for some of you, one of the more frightening parts of this virus is this idea 
that you can be carrying the virus and be relatively symptom-free. And so while you yourself are not in a ton of personal danger, you might represent or be a frightening danger to someone else. And it's one thing to be dangerous to others without knowing it, but it's a whole other thing to be in personal danger without knowing it. About 10 years ago, my mom was having some heart trouble. Many of y'all know my dad is a cardiologist, so uh, they were able to work on some of that stuff together. Um, and it, it was prolonged. It was a prolonged issue. And finally, ultimately, uh, they decided it was best, even with some of the risks, to go ahead and get a pacemaker. And it was good for about a month. And uh, about a month into it, my mom began to feel exhausted. Um, and unbeknownst to her, uh, she's just sitting there thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit under the weather. I probably am just, just tired. So she's thinking, all right, the solution to, here, to this is to, is to take a nap. So she does that. After she wakes up, she can hardly walk. And so she calls my dad, um, tells him of the symptoms of which he immediately says, call 911. Within hours, she was in the hospital and having surgery because unbeknownst to her and really unbeknownst to my dad as well until the surgery took place, one of the leads in her pacemaker had shifted and it had perforated her heart. She was within hours, not days, of dying, right? She believed that at that point in time, her biggest problem was exhaustion, and she was on board for the possible solutions to that, right? Uh, getting a little bit more rest, that was going to help the exhaustion. But it was only frightening level of intervention, right, that actually brought about any real solution. What if the problems that we see most in our lives are not our biggest problems? Right? What if our desire for the lockdown to end or for political change to come or maybe even just for sickness to end? What if those problems are not our biggest problems? And maybe what if our solutions are merely trying to take a nap when what we really need is massive intervention, some sort of heart surgery? Well, as we look at our passage this morning Let's look at Jesus and his upcoming mission and passion event through the lens of these characters, most of whom cannot see the biggest problems going on in their own lives. Just like them, we struggle to understand Jesus' mission because we struggle to understand the nature of our problem. We fall into the belief that, that we may not have any real problems, perhaps, right? that life is pretty good the way that it is, or maybe it felt that way prior to COVID. Or we believe that our biggest problems are our circumstances. Right? They're caused by someone or something else. Definitely something that's out there, not something that's in here. But Jesus' mission teaches us the nature of our problem. The crucifixion reminds us that our biggest problem is ourselves. That we, because of our own hearts, we are traitorous. And Jesus takes our traitorous guilt upon himself through his sacrificial death. Jesus' mission tells us that our biggest problem is ourselves, and we don't really like that very much. 
In fact, we react very similarly to those in our passage. And so let's look at Jesus' mission through the reaction of those who are near Jesus. We're going to look first through, Jesus, through the lens of Judas and the other disciples, then through the chief priests, and finally through this unnamed woman. Let's first look through Judas and the other disciples. The story that we read today is three distinct stories in one. Right? The first and the third are intimately connected. They're connected by the second. We see in the very first episode that the chief priests, they want to arrest Jesus. They're done with him. They want him gone. In the third episode, we see that Judas is the solution to their problem. He betrays Jesus, and he is going to deliver them over to the chief priests. We don't exactly know what triggers Judas to all of a sudden betray Jesus, but it seems to have something to do with whatever's going on in this middle passage. This middle passage that recounts the anointing of Jesus for burial. Why would this dinner all of a sudden be the final straw that broke the camel's back of Judas' allegiance? Because it's here that once and for all, Jesus confirms that his mission and Judas' mission are not the same. Right? Judas was all on board with this Messiah thing in the beginning. Right? He was cool with Jesus setting up his own kingdom. He was excited about the idea that, that maybe Rome would be overthrown. And he was excited about sitting at Jesus' right hand and maybe getting all the privileges that might come with that. It would come with personal power and maybe some glory with it. But it is here that Jesus affirms once again that he is going to die imminently. This dinner, this dinner, Jesus is anointed for burial. And if Jesus dies, then any sort of a real physical kingdom change is impossible. Right, if Jesus dies, then any real governmental power that he might possess is gone. And therefore, any ability that Judas might gain to, to influence others is gone with it. Or maybe it's just that if Jesus dies, then he proves, at least in Judas's mind and maybe some of the other disciples, that he's no different than any of the other false messiahs who died prior to Jesus or who do so after him as well. It's at this point that Judas decides he's going to get off the sinking Titanic of a revolution, right? He's done. And he isn't just about self-preservation here. He wants to take this self-preservation and turn it into self-profit. He's going to get out, but he might as well get something out of the deal as well. And so it's at this time that he decides to betray Jesus, to help the chief priest, to have an opportunity, as the Bible says, to seize Jesus quietly, so as to keep from causing a massive uproar from the large crowds that have come to Jerusalem during the Passover feast. Judas and even the other disciples, they, they desire what all of the Jewish people would have wanted at that time. They longed for a Savior to establish a peaceful, prosperous, physical kingdom of Israel. As they were a people who were oppressed by the Romans, they had real needs, and these needs were ever present before them. They needed someone to deal with their oppression. They needed someone to bring peace. They wanted someone to come and to bring the prosperity that they've continued to read about over and over again in the Old Testament, but have not yet tasted. 
But like the disciples in Judas, do you misunderstand Jesus' mission? Again, what is the biggest problem in your life? Are your biggest problems out there? Do your problems stem from a current or maybe a possible future political administration? Do they stem from people groups that are clamoring for certain types of change like social justice warriors or white nationalists? Or are your problems caused by a stunted economy during the season of COVID or from loneliness that comes from the separation that we've all felt with one another? You wouldn't be alone with feeling any of these problems. A psychology website lists that the three biggest anxieties that Americans face right now are the anxiety of whether or not they can pay their bills, whether they are going to be physically safe, and then whether or not they have or can save some of their relationships. If those are our biggest problems, though, my question for us is this. Why do we need Jesus? His mission is not in line with any new campaign. His mission is not in line with any new social agenda. It doesn't bring affluence or abundance, at least in the way that we might want. If, if the things that are out there are our biggest problem, then we don't actually need Jesus. But if there is a bigger problem that we all suffer from, then perhaps we, like the disciples here and like Judas, need to realign our values. And perhaps we need to re-see Jesus' mission through the lens of our greatest problem, the problem of sin. For it is because of our sin, it is because of our rebellion from God and our estrangement from one another that no political administration can, can bring lasting peace because in our sin, we will war once again. No group can free us from oppression because we will be oppressed again in our sin and we will oppress others again in our sin. No one can bring true prosperity. We will cheat one another yet again. Jesus' mission is to deal with our sin for in our sin, left to ourselves, we are doomed. But Jesus loves us so much that he's unwilling to give us the things that we might want, the change that we might want, right? He's unwilling to give us just that little bit of a cotton candy taste of salvation that is going to be gone in a millisecond when he is offering us the inheritance of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. That is the salvation that he has for us. Do you struggle to understand yourself as a sinner in need at times, we all do. But if so, if you are struggling this morning, my question to you is, who is Jesus then to you? Do, you? do you try and use Jesus for your benefit? Do you try and use him for your interests? As we've read again and again in Mark's gospel, he will not bend to our will. Or maybe... We're fine with Jesus as long as he doesn't really mess up some of the good things we have going on in our life. And this passage asks us to not only look at Jesus' mission through the lens of Judas and the disciples, it also asks for us to look at it through the lens of the chief priests. So let's do that now. While Judas's decision to betray Jesus aligns with the chief priests, it's, it's not evident that they share the same motivation. 
Right? Judas only now decides to betray Jesus, whereas the chief priests have been, have been against Jesus the whole time. It's, Judas leaves Jesus because Jesus doesn't bring the type of change that Judas wants. The chief priests wants, want Jesus gone because they don't want things to change at all. Right? The chief priests have almost all that they could want. They're, they're the elite class of those in Israel at the time. Sure, it might have been nice for, for Israel to have some sense of independence, but these guys, they're living their best life now. Right? They are in power. They are comfortable, and everything is good. Jesus, though, is beginning to rock the boat, and they don't like it. It's because Jesus is bringing his kingdom, a kingdom that challenges them to change, that they want him gone. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was trying to think about whether we in West Houston maybe identify a little bit more with Judas and the other disciples in this, or whether we identify a little bit more with the chief priests. And I think it's, it's a little bit of both. Right? In many ways, we are like the disciples, not completely understanding what Jesus is all about, not completely understanding what our need is. Right? To take C.S. Lewis's very famous illustration and try to modernize it a little bit, we are far too content to just like play with our Amazon packaging box that came in the mail when we have actually been offered Disney World, right? But in so many ways, we are like the chief priests as well. We have it good. There aren't many big problems that we face in our life that we can't fix. Or if we can't fix a problem in our life, we probably know some people that can help. And if that's the case for you, I know it is for me as well, it can be hard to let Jesus in because he'll likely just, just mess up the pretty good thing that we have going on in our life. He'll challenge us with the truth about ourselves. He'll challenge us to live differently. He'll challenge us to change our posture of self-reliance and to come to him with a posture of need. But it is in that new posture that we will find that he withholds nothing from us. The riches of his love and his kingdom far surpass whatever the things in your life that you want to hold on to and to cling to. So let's look now through the lens of the anonymous woman. While the beginning and the end of our passage deal with Judas and the chief priest, the majority of the passage is about this anonymous woman. Right, Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover feast, and they stop in this little town on the way to Jerusalem called Bethany. They're having dinner. It says here that they're having dinner with Simon the leper. And Mark includes that detail so that we can know this is a celebratory type dinner. Simon the leper is probably not a leper any longer. He's somebody who was healed by Jesus at this point. I, they're enjoying themselves. They're having a fun time together. And this woman comes in. This nameless woman that Mark talks about. She does something very strange. She brings a jar. She breaks the jar. And she puts this ointment on Jesus' head. Now, now this jar isn't just any jar as, the, as our passage tells us. This is an alabaster jar. Right? This is a jar that was made out of a marble-like material. So the jar itself is incredibly valuable. And you've probably heard um, that, that many jars like that 
had to be broken in order to be opened. And so it was, they, were, they were guaranteed for a one-time use. And that's true to some extent, although there were other jars similarly like it that you could open and close, which I think makes this the, even more important that Mark includes this detail. The woman breaks it. Whether it was intended to be used one time or many times, she's going to pour it all out on Jesus. She's not holding anything back. And inside of this jar is an incredibly expensive perfume that's made out of spikenard. And with that detail, we find out that the perfume is made from, from, from an eastern location, far off, probably a place like India. And thus, it's even more valuable. Mark tells us through the disciples' own discomfort with what's going on that, that, an, uh, that this uh, perfume that she has used to douse Jesus with is worth three, more than 300 denarii. So in essence, this is worth almost a year's worth of salary that she has seemingly wasted on Jesus. She's seemingly wasted her retirement in this episode. She risks reputational damage by coming to the feast. She risks her financial future by pouring it out upon Jesus. And she risks ridicule for her extravagant act. But she does all of this out of devotion and out of worship to Jesus. There are no other motivators for her. She takes what is almost certainly the most valuable thing that she owns and she gives it to Jesus. I don't think she fully understands everything that she's doing here. I don't think she fully understands that she's anointing him for burial. But she does understand that she is coming to honor him and to bring him glory. And in God's providence, he is using this to honor Jesus unto his chief purpose. She is now honoring him in God's providence unto the cross, unto the sacrifice that he's making on our behalf. It is the person and work of Jesus that should drive us to worship. We don't come to him with our own agenda. We cannot come to him with our own agenda if we truly understand the chief problem that we all have. If our biggest problem is ourself and our sin that we bear, then there is no agenda that we can bring before him. All we can bring to him is our need of him. We bring him our heart because he deals with that. He changes us from the inside out. It is on the cross that he has taken our guilt and our shame. And we are free now from condemnation. And it's by faith that we continue to follow him and to pick up our cross daily. I think one of the best illustrations that I've ever encountered of Christ's sacrificial love for us comes from Charles Dickens' work, A Tale of Two Cities. And much to my wife's dismay, I'm about to use an illustration from a book that I have not yet read. However, I have seen the 1989 made-for-TV movie about A Tale for Two Cities. I actually really recommend it. It's awesome. I saw it when I was a kid, and I remember it to this day because of the impact that it made on me as I was watching it. It's a story that's set in both England and in France just prior to the bloody French Revolution. And we're not going to focus on the beginning or the middle of the story. We're going to go straight to the end, so spoiler alert. 
we're going to, at the end, focuses on two particular characters, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay, who happen to be in a love triangle. They happen to be both in love with the same woman, Lucy Manette. Darnay is imprisoned, and he is set to be executed by way of the guillotine. And he's, he's imprisoned, actually, on false, false charges, on trumped-up charges. Although Carton is in love with Lucy, her romantic love belongs to Darnay. Carton has been selfish. He's been fast-living throughout much of the story up to this point. But his love for Lucy, even though she's in love with another man, has begun to change him. And so he desires to give her what she truly wants, which is Darnay himself. So Carton hatches this plan to switch places with Darnay in prison. Right? And, and they look just enough alike for this to possibly work. He goes into the jail. He forces them to switch clothing. He drugs him. So as, he's, as Darnay is passed out asleep, he is carried out of the jail by another friend who is in on the plan. Carton subsequently takes Darnay's place in the jail. He takes his place in line for execution. And ultimately, he takes his place on the chopping block itself in the guillotine. As powerful as a story as this is, it only captures part of the sacrificial nature of Jesus' love for you and me. Yes, like this story, Jesus takes our place of us who are condemned. But unlike Darnay, we are utterly guilty. We are utterly guilty against the judge himself. It's not a third party who comes in to take our place. It is the offended party. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Romans. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, sinners against God himself, Christ died for us. His mission is the salvation of his people to bring reconciliation with God and to bring us salvation from our hearts to the very ends of the earth. So how should we respond to this passage? Well, first, as we do every week, we continue to bring our sin before Jesus knowing that, that he forgives us based upon his work on the cross and that we have freedom in him. But the second application is a little bit harder within the context of the passage. Are we supposed to, to bring expensive forms of worship to Jesus? Are we supposed to spend thousands and thousands of dollars as we worship him? It almost feels like the passage is saying, don't worry about the poor. They'll always be poor. Almost heartlessly is what it feels like. No, that's not at all what the passage is saying. The passage is teaching that first and foremost, that worshiping Jesus is not about the gift that we bring, but rather it is about the disposition of our heart. And secondly, we need to be reminded that what Jesus is saying here is because this is a one-time event. What he is saying is that what this woman has done is uniquely wonderful. Because the time with Jesus is itself unique, right? He is headed from here to the cross. He is about to die and then to be resurrected and now to be ascended to the throne in heaven itself. 
So what Jesus is teaching us here is that what he is offering us is so much abundance that the physical concerns that we have in this world pale in comparison. That we are to give. We're to give freely of our time, to give of our, uh, our resources so that the gospel might continue to be proclaimed as the passage says even here so that the story of this woman pouring out love upon Jesus Christ will continue to be told again and again as the gospel is proclaimed. But we're also, we are a people who have been changed by the crucified Lord. We have been given the riches of his salvation, and so we are to share that overflow of riches with others by word and by deed. We are to love others because he has first loved us. Let me conclude with this. We are our biggest problem, right? And how we respond to Jesus tells us everything that we think about what that problem is, right? If, if we don't think that we have any real problems, then it's easy enough to avoid Jesus because all he's going to do is get in the way and mess up what's already pretty good, right? If, if we think that we merely need him to come along and to help fix some problems that we have out there, then it's going to be easy for us to be disappointed with Jesus, to be disappointed with his priorities or with his timetable. But if we see that our sin, apart from Christ, is our biggest problem, then it will drive us to worship, extravagant and uninhibited worship. John Stott, the pastor and theologian, says it this way, until you see the cross as that which is done by you, you will never appreciate that it is done for you. In essence, until we see that our own sin is the cause of the crucifixion, we will never glory in the redemption that he has offered to us on the cross. May we see our problem and may we see the salvation that is offered to us in Jesus as even now we're about to come to the table together. May we do so and may we sit at the feet of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you love us too much to leave us to our own devices. Lord, I pray that you would continue to show us our own sin and to help us to bring it before you boldly as we even sang, that we might boldly come before your throne. Lord, we come to you this morning knowing that you are a gracious God who offers far more than we could ever dare hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. Our God and Father, we do give you thanks and praise. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us on the cross, and we thank you for the reminder even now that we feed upon your grace and your grace alone. We pray that we would be reminded of that fact this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us therefore proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, 
Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. On Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the body of Jesus Christ. Take and be nourished. The same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it whenever you do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, we do proclaim our Lord's death until he comes again. This is the cup of salvation. Let's drink together. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that it is nothing but his blood that brings us salvation. We pray, Lord, that we would revel in that fact and delight in that fact. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and rejoice together as we sing.